Thank you so much. Good morning. I hope you guys are doing well. Just wave at me if you've had a average to good week. <laughs> wave at me if your week could have been better. The Lord bless you. <laughs> we all have weeks like that. Um, I, I went to Germany for the first time this week, which was fun. Uh, any Germans in the house? Yeah, wow, that's good. First time I was in Munich this week with some friends who are planting a church in that great city, had a fantastic time, had some great German sausage and German beer, and oh, it was the real good stuff. And um, if, uh, if you have a heart for Germany or you have a heart for church planting, I can hook you up. Come and see me. And uh, that was a real highlight of this week. Uh, also, the other highlight was the uh, new Star Wars trailer came out. Hmm. Definite Marmite kind of Star Wars, yes. Are you tre- any Trekkies in the house? Star Wars? Okay, let's just, right, okay, we're just going to do a quick, like, uh, quick cheer off. Like, Star Wars. Star Trek. Hmm. There was one very loud voice over there for Star Trek, so you, you guys have it. Uh, also, it's the, uh, it's the golf, it's the Masters this week. A friend walked into our living room as I was watching the golf, and she's like, there are many things that I don't understand in this world, and watching golf is one of them. <laughs> so uh, anyway, there you go. It's been a good week, apart from Brighton losing 5-0 yesterday. That was bad. That was very bad. So we are, we are in a series uh, looking at the passion narrative in Mark's gospel. And if you were here last week, you would have heard Simon preach brilliantly from Mark chapter 14, and we're going to be in Mark chapter 15 today. And I thought it was so powerful last week, just reading the text, just reading the scripture together and allowing the, just the profundity of the message itself speak to us. And so what I'm going to do is just read the entirety of Mark chapter 15 and uh, I pray that as we read this, the Holy Spirit will just bring this story alive to you again. And we're going to dive into some lessons from this text this morning. So, Mark chapter 15. Very early in the morning, the leading priests, the elders, and the teachers of the religious law, the entire high council met to discuss their next step. They bound Jesus, led him away, and took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, You have said it. Then the leading priest kept accusing him of many crimes, and Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer them? What about all these charges that they are bringing against you? But Jesus said nothing much to Pilate's surprise. Now it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner, anyone the people requested. One of the prisoners at that time was Barabbas, a revolutionary who had committed murder in an uprising. The crowd went to Pilate and asked him to release a prisoner as usual. Would you like me to release to you this king of the Jews, Pilate asked. For he realized by now that the leading priest had arrested Jesus out of envy. But at this point, the leading priest stirred up the crowd to demand the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus. Pilate asked him, Then what shall I do with this man that you call the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, Crucify him! Why? Pilate demanded. What crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder, Crucify him! And so to pacify the crowd... Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip 
and then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. The soldiers took Jesus into the courtyard of the governor's headquarters called the Praetorium and called out the entire regiment. They dressed him in a purple robe and they wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head. And then they saluted him and taunted, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him on the head with a stick, spit on him and dropped to their knees in mock worship. When they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him again. And then they led him away to be crucified. A passerby named Simon, who was from Cyrene, was coming in from the countryside just then, and the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Incidentally, they are leaders in the early church. You can read that in the book of Romans. And they brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They offered him wine drugged with myrrh, but he refused it. And then the soldiers nailed him to the cross. They divided his clothes and threw dice to decide who would get each piece. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. And a sign announced the charge against him and it read, The King of the Jews. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Ha, look at you now, they yelled at him. You were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, save yourself and come down from the cross. The leading priests and teachers of religious law also mocked Jesus. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross. And then we can see it and believe him. Even the men who were crucified with Jesus ridiculed him. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. And then at three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sebakthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling out for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could drink. Wait, he said, let's see whether Elijah comes to take him down. But then Jesus uttered another loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the Roman officer who stood facing him saw how he had died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were there watching from a distance, including Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. They had been followers of Jesus and had cared for him while he was in Galilee. Many other women who had come with him to Jerusalem were also there. This all happened on Friday, the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath. And as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea took a risk and went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Joseph was an honored member of the high council and was waiting for the kingdom of God to come. Pilate couldn't believe that Jesus was already dead. And so he called for the Roman officer and asked if he had died yet. The officer confirmed that Jesus was dead, so Pilate told Joseph he could have the body. Joseph brought a long sheet of linen cloth. Then he took Jesus' body down from the cross, wrapped it in the cloth, and laid it in a tomb that had been carved out of the rock. And he rolled a stone in front of the entrance. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where Jesus' body was laid. Father, we thank you for this 
story that has shaped and changed history. And it's the story behind the reason that we are here this morning. And we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the cross. And I ask you, Holy Spirit, would you come and bring to life this story again in our hearts? I pray for those of us that are maybe hearing this story for the first time. Lord, let this come alive to us. I pray that we would see Jesus for the first time, that we would see what you did on the cross for us. We pray, Father, if we've read this story a thousand times before, Holy Spirit, bring it to life again in our hearts. Lord God, we say this is the reason we're here, because of Christ on the cross, crucified for us. We celebrate it, we thank you, and we say, Spirit of God, show up and bring revelation to us this morning. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you are a follower of Jesus here this morning, you have come to a cross-shaped story. And Mark's gospel is this stunning account of what happens at the crucifixion and the passion narrative. And over nearly a quarter of Mark's gospel is about the story of Jesus either going to the cross, on the cross, or being resurrected from the cross. And he really is writing at the time to many believers who themselves were being martyred for their belief in Jesus. So Mark is writing to persecuted Christians and saying, listen, remember in your suffering, remember Jesus, your hero. Remember the one who went to the cross. This is the heartbeat of your faith. Look to Jesus. That's why Mark is writing his particular account. And a man called David Pryor says this, we never move on from the cross only into a more profound understanding of the cross. You see, we live in this very consumeristic, entitled, self-obsessed culture and never has there been a time where we need to hear the message of the cross again. The cross is foolishness to the world. It is an offense to the world. It is countercultural to the world because at the heart of Christianity is an instrument of torture and a God who came and bled and died and suffered and showed us what true love really looks like. It is the opposite of entitlement. It's the opposite of consumerism. It's the opposite of self. But it shows us what love really is. Our gospel has at its heart a suffering servant who laid down his life on a cross. And the truth is that you cannot embrace Christ unless you embrace his cross. When Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must pick up his cross and follow me. He was talking about this. He was saying the gateway into the kingdom is through the cross, is believing in what I did on that tree, on Calvary, on that day. That's the only way to the Father, is through the cross. This is the entryway, the gateway, the doorway. You cannot embrace Christ if you don't embrace the cross. This is the heartbeat of the message. And what Mark does in this story is he paints these vivid kind of vignettes of witnesses of the crucifixion, men and women who saw what was happening on that day and saw different aspects of the crucifixion. And our first witness is a man called Barabbas. Barabbas. Now, I don't know if those of you who play sport have ever been substituted, but it's a humiliating experience. I remember when I was playing for my school football team, I was about 11 years old at the time, I got substituted for a kid who was in the year younger than me. I mean, that is painful right there. That took me a long time to get over. The year younger than me. And, you know, it, it, was, a, it was a poor moment. But how many of you know 
the moment you cheer when the substitute comes on the pitch is the man who comes to take the punishment that you deserve. That's the moment where you put your hands in the air and say, hallelujah. Here is one who comes to take the punishment that my sins deserve. And if anyone could say Jesus was my substitute, it was Barabbas. He was the first person to really see this truth that Jesus died in my place. And we don't know that much about Barabbas. We know that he was a murderer and that he was in jail for insurrection. And most writers say that Barabbas probably, he was, he was a religious terrorist. That's who he was. He was a terrorist of the day. He was a, a Zionist, a zealot. He was one who wanted the overthrow of Rome. And the likelihood is that he had murdered Romans and that's why he was in jail. He was an insurrectionist. And actually, as the crowd shout for him to be released he would have had a lot of their support because he was someone who opposed the might and the rule of Rome. Interestingly, Barabbas' name literally means the son of the father. The word Bar means son, Abba means father. In Matthew's gospel, we read that his first name was actually Jesus. He was Jesus Bar Abba. Jesus, the son of the father. And this is the man that literally suddenly finds himself shackles off, feet free, looking into the face of a man who becomes his substitute. Barabbas almost certainly was facing crucifixion himself. He was a man waiting to be flogged, waiting to be punished by the Romans. And suddenly, out of nowhere, he is free when he doesn't deserve it. And he is looking into the face of a pure, innocent man who takes his place. Jesus my substitute. And scripture is very, very clear as to the reason that Jesus died. Jesus died for your sins. He died for my sins. He took the punishment that I deserve. The way that Isaiah puts it is the punishment that brought us peace was laid upon him. He is our divine substitute. And something happens in the cross of Jesus. A divine exchange takes place where the sinless one takes on my sin and steps into the punishment that I deserve. And that is the gospel, my friends, that Jesus has become your substitute. He has taken the punishment that your sins rightfully deserve. A divine substitution has happened. This is what Derek Bingham said about this substitution. He says, I gave him a crown of thorns, and he gave me a crown of righteousness. I gave him a cross to carry, and he gave me his yoke, which is easy, his burden, which is light. I gave him nails through his hands, and he gave me safely into his father's hands, from which no power can pluck me. I gave him a mocking title. This is the king of the Jews. And he gave me a new name and made me a king and a priest to God. I gave him no covering, stripping his clothes from him, and he gave me a garment of salvation. I gave him mockery, casting the same in his teeth, and he gave me paradise. I gave him vinegar to drink, and he gave me living water. I crucified and slew him on a tree, and he gave me eternal life. It was my sinfulness that put him there, and it is his sinlessness that puts me here. That's the divine exchange. 
Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. It says, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. The sinless one became the most repugnant being in the universe as he took your rottenness, my evil, upon himself, and he took the wrath of God in my place. Jesus, my substitute. That's the good news of the gospel. It's grace. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. And here's the thing. Grace will never be amazing to you if you think that you really deserve it. You will never understand the glory of the gospel unless you first understand, I was lost without a trace. My sins were deserving of the righteous judgment and wrath of God. I was under his judgment. I was cast off far from him. I deserved wrath, but another has taken my place. You will never understand amazing grace unless you understand I was by nature an object of wrath. But one has come to take my place. Jesus, Jesus. Then you can sing amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, now I'm found. I was blind, now I see. If you think you're entitled to forgiveness, you have not understood the cross. At the cross, we get God's free, undeserving grace. Barabbas didn't deserve it, but suddenly his chains were loosed and the son of the father walks free. Because of Jesus. Jesus. And Jesus stands in the place of both those who are victims of sin and also the perpetrators of sin. I think often we find it easy to give grace to the victims of sin, but less easy to give grace to the perpetrators perpetrators of sin. But the truth is, in this moment, Jesus stands for both. He stands for victims and executioners. He is dying for the sins of those who've been affected by sin, but also those who commit sin, which actually is all of us. Just think what Jesus endures in this moment. He is falsely accused. He is bullied. He is persecuted. He is abused. He was mocked. He was beaten, humiliated, intimidated, violated, abandoned, betrayed, and ultimately murdered. Now, many of you can tick those things on that list and say, yeah, that's been my experience. Jesus died to identify with your feeling of infirmity. One of the biggest objections to the Christian faith, if you talk to people out in the street, is, well, what about suffering? How come God can allow suffering? How come he's up there somewhere and we're here experiencing pain? Well, listen, this is the truth of the gospel. God himself has stepped into your pain. He has stepped into your suffering. And he's like, I now identify with your feeling of weakness. I have come that you might know forgiveness, redemption, freedom, restoration. I take that sin upon myself that you can be washed clean. That's the gospel. That is the gospel. But he also died for the perpetrators of sin. He died for the liars. Any liars in the room? I've been a liar. (laughs) He died for the bullies. He died for the persecutors, for the abusers, for the mockers, for the violent, for those who humiliate others and intimidate, for the violators, for the unfaithful, and for the murderous. He died for perpetrators. There's grace. At the cross, there is grace. Because the cross is a moment of divine justice and mercy. 
You know, I remember a few years ago, I was thinking about my own experience of school and how I, I was bullied for many years at school. And it, it, it left a mark and there have been things that I've had to work through through the years. And I remember one particular girl, the, the day that the bullying stopped from her to me, and she'd bullied me for years at school, calling me names and making my life a misery. And I just remember one day, I just, I'd had enough, and I thought, right, I, I'm going on the attack. You know, I, I'm, I'm just I'm going after her. And I remember one day as she said something to me, I remember saying to her, I said, yeah, well, you're not much of a supermodel yourself. And for me, that was quite radical. I didn't do things like that. That, like, that felt like a big deal, you know. I was like, I'm out there. And, and that was the day that the bullying stopped from her to me. And I was so pleased. And I was pleased for decades. I was like, that was the moment. I stood up for myself and the bullying stopped. Yes. It was only two years ago that I felt the Holy Spirit remind me of those words that came out of my mouth. And I felt him say to me, how do you think those words made her feel? Because the reality is the bullied had become a bully. You know, and we know the truth that bullies are usually bullied themselves. And I thought, I wonder what that did for her. And I had a moment of just weeping and repenting and saying, Father, I am so sorry. And praying blessing on her life. But the truth is, the cross paid the price for victims and executioners. Jesus is our substitute. And have you ever wondered why in the story, Jesus is silent when he's accused? Pilate was so surprised by it. He's like, don't you want to answer the accusations against you? But Jesus' mouth was silent. Have you ever wondered why that is? Well, the reason is that Jesus wasn't losing his life. He was giving his life. <laughs> Jesus is silent because he is silently in charge. <laughs> Everyone else is bustling and accusing and, and, and kind of going after the execution. And Jesus actually silently is the one who's in charge all along. In fact, in John's gospel, this is what he said. He said, no one can take my life from me. I sacrificed it voluntarily. For I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also to take it up again. For this is what my father has commanded. Sometimes God's power is shown in silence, not shouts. And the miracle of the cross is that Jesus voluntarily chose to be your substitute. He gave his life. He wasn't losing his life. He gave it as a substitute for you. And I want to say to you, if you are here and you are not yet a follower of Jesus, if you've never taken that step to put your trust in Jesus, if you know, I, I, I carry sin in my own life and I've never brought them to the foot of the cross, it is my job to warn you, my friends, don't go to your grave carrying your sins on yourself. Don't go to your grave carrying those things on your shoulders. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hell is real. Eternal judgment is real. It will face all of us. One day we will all face the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for our life. Don't get there carrying your own sins. Put them on another. <laughs> Say, Jesus I give you my sins to carry. You have become my substitute. I plead your blood over my life. Don't get to the grave without doing that. Because I tell you, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He offers you forgiveness now. Accept his offer. Remember a friend of mine once told me a story of how she went to visit a family member of hers who was very close to death. And this family member had abused her for much of her life. And had been the source of... Uh, the most horrific pain 
And yet she had come to Christ and she had forgiven this man in her heart. And as she went to visit him, he was quite close to death. They didn't know if he was going to recover, but he was looking sick. And she thought, right, I've got to go and just tell this man I forgive him for what he did to me. And in that moment, she is acting out the cross. She's acting out what happened on the, on the cross of Calvary. And as she sat down to talk to this family member, and as she was about to utter the words, I forgive you, he sat up in his bed and he said, what have I ever done to deserve this? Right at the moment that he was about to be offered forgiveness, but for him it was too late and he had a heart attack on the spot. And he died not long after. Let me tell you, this stuff is real. Jesus is your substitute. And he says, I offer you forgiveness. Your place for my place. My sinlessness for your sin. I step into your place. I would urge you to put your faith in Christ this morning. To look to him as your substitute. The second witness in our story is a man called Simon of Cyrene. The man who famously carried the cross of Christ. And Simon was from Africa. He was an African man. He was from Libya, which is where Cyrene is. It's about 800 miles from Jerusalem. And the likelihood is that Simon was in Jerusalem because he was a Jewish believer visiting for the Passover festival. And the Passover festival is one of the most important moments in the Jewish calendar. And Simon was part of many pilgrims flocking to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover And suddenly, out of nowhere, as he's just in the crowd, minding his own business, the Romans pull him into the scene of the passion narrative and ask him to carry the crossbeam of Jesus. Now, this crossbeam would have weighed something in the region of 120 pounds. It was an incredibly heavy piece of wood. It would have been a recycled piece of wood. So this was a piece of wood that had executed many men before. It wasn't a nicely sanded, planed piece of wood. This was a piece of rough timber. It would have had the blood and bodily fluids of previously executed men on it. And Jesus is called to carry this through the streets of Jerusalem. Bear in mind that Jesus also is carrying this in a severely weakened, depleted state because he has just been flogged by the Romans. A Roman scourging could kill you in its own right. It was so severe. There was no limit on the number of lashes you could receive. The lashes themselves were leather thongs tipped with metal balls or sheep bones. And the goal of a Roman flogging was to do as much damage as possible without killing you. Literally, a Roman flogging could break bones, reach internal organs. It would cause massive hemorrhaging and blood loss. And this is the state that Jesus is in as he is carrying this 120 beam of wood through the streets of a packed, hot, steaming Jerusalem. And he is so weakened that he cannot carry it. And suddenly, Simon finds himself carrying the cross of Jesus. And I think for Simon, there was this moment of revelation where he began to see the sacrifice of Jesus in front of him. And he saw that actually Jesus is the Passover lamb. That's the reason why Simon was in Jerusalem, to celebrate Passover. Passover was the celebration of the release from captivity of the Israelites. You can read about it in Exodus chapter 12. 
The Israelites had been in slavery for many, many hundreds of years in Egypt. And there comes a moment where God comes to Moses and the Israelites and says, you are about to be set free from your captivity. And this is how it's going to happen. You're to take a lamb without defect and you are to kill the lamb, slaughter the lamb, and then smear the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of the homes where you live. And this evening, the angel of death will pass over the house of every house that has the lamb on its doorpost. And that night in Egypt, the angel of death came through that city, came through that nation. But the Israelites were spared by the blood of the lamb. And the very day after, they leave captivity and they head towards the promised land. That was what they were celebrating at Passover, the release from captivity. And John's gospel says that at the very moment that Jesus was crucified, was the very moment where in the temple they were sacrificing the Passover lamb. And Simon, in this moment, suddenly gets a revelation. You are the true Passover lamb. You are the one whose blood comes to take away our sin. You are the true lamb. This is what Peter says, 1 Peter 1.18. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. But now in these last days, he has been revealed for your sake God, as it were, the moment that you put your faith in Christ, puts the blood of Jesus over the doorway of your heart and your life and says, you are no longer a slave to death. Death has passed over you. You are free. Jesus is your Passover lamb. And that's why in Hebrews it says, one sacrifice has now been offered that will never have to be offered again. You don't have to go to the temple to sacrifice a lamb because one perfect, spotless lamb without blemish without sin, has been offered on your behalf and his blood cleanses you from sin. (laughs) Do you know, once you put your faith in Christ, you're saved for all eternity because one act has paid for you eternally. Jesus' blood speaks over you a better word, a secure word, an eternal word. And then the last witness in our stories, the Roman centurion. I love this. You know, Roman centurions were very used to being around death, very used to being around violence. And this particular man in the story, as he witnesses the crucifixion of Jesus, he was seeing something he'd seen probably many times before. It was known that in one day, 6,000 people were crucified. Bear in mind that crucifixions happened in Tesco's car park. They happened in the place where most people would see them. Because it was meant to be a deterrent against Roman, against usurping Roman law. So imagine turning up to Tesco's with your family to do your shopping. That's where the crucifixes would have been. And that's where this Roman centurion would have been right at home. He'd seen it all before. And yet something was different about this man. And he said, surely this was the son of God. What was it that he saw? What was it that was different about this one man when he'd seen many crucified in this way before? Well, there's a number of things. Firstly, he would have witnessed the signs in creation itself. We read that as Jesus is being crucified, the sun is darkened and the sky grew black. 
It's almost as if creation itself is suffering with the creator as he is suffering on the cross. It's like the, the, the groans of creation are joining with the groans of the creator and the sun itself is blotted out from the sky. And it's interesting that Roman historians witnessed the same event at the same time. Men who didn't believe in Jesus wrote about this very cosmic event at the time that it happened. One such man was a Roman historian called Phleglon who wrote this. He said, in the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, there was an extraordinary eclipse of the sun. At the sixth hour, the day turned into dark night so that the stars in heaven were seen and there was an earthquake. This is not a Christian man. This is a Roman historian writing about this very moment, this very time. This was remarkable because the time that the Passover was happening during a full moon, natural eclipses of the sun were a cosmically impossible event. The centurion saw the sign in the heaven. He saw the witness of creation itself. I think also he saw the second witness, which was the cry of victory from Jesus' lips himself. He saw the, the dignity <laughs> with which this man died on the cross. There was something different, something otherworldly about this death. It was different than all the others. And in particular, you heard these words from the lips of Jesus, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Now, many people have misunderstood those words through the years. Many people have heard those words as if to say, God abandoned Jesus on the cross. And this is Jesus feeling desolate and abandoned and, and as if the Father has departed from him. But I would suggest to you that that is not what is happening on the cross in this moment. Jesus is quoting the first line of Psalm 22. You can read it when you get home. The first line of Psalm 22 is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in Jewish custom and literature, you only had to say the first line of the song to reference the rest of the psalm. So if I were to say to you, all you need is love, there it is. You only had to say the first line and immediately you would think about what the rest of the song stood for. And that is what's happening in this moment. And here is how Psalm 22 ends. It's a psalm of victory. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. And all who go down to the dust will kneel before him. And those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. And they will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn. He has done it. He has done it. It's a cry of victory. And in John's gospel, the last words that Jesus utters in Greek, the meaning is, it is finished. Which means it is paid in full. Amen. Paid in full. And the centurion, here's these words. It is paid in full. It is finished. Future generations will be told about him. All the ends of the earth are going to tell you about this man hanging on a cross. It was a cry of victory. And the centurion saw it. He picked up what was happening in that moment. And then the third thing that he sees is the witness of God in heaven itself. We read this, we read this story that the curtain of the temple which was the place of Jewish worship, was torn 
not from the bottom to the top, but from the top to the bottom. In other words, who tore the veil? God. (laughs) What was the veil there for? Well, the veil in the temple separated the Holy of Holies, which is where God was, with everybody else. (laughs) It was a veil of separation so that the unholy would not mix with the holy. It was so that God wouldn't kill you if you stepped into his presence because the two cannot mix. And so there was a curtain signifying the barrier, the obstacle between you and God. And in this moment, as Jesus breathes his last and says, it's done, it's finished, it's paid in full, God himself takes the barrier and he rips it from top to bottom. He rips it from heaven to earth. In other words, God himself is witnessing to the victory of this event and he's saying there is no longer any barrier for you to enter the presence of God. It's time to come on home, come back to the Father's house, come be adopted into my family. The way is open, it's paid in full. The blood of my own perfect son has made a doorway into my presence and it's time to come back. It's time to come home. It's a cry of victory. And so the centurion says, surely this man was the Son of God. It was the moment he stepped into faith himself. And I'll finish just with this quote from Martin Luther. There's two great quotes there, but I'll just read one of them. Martin Luther says this, Learn to know Christ and him crucified. Learn to sing to him and say, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness. I am your sin. You have taken upon yourself what is mine and given me what is yours. You have become what you were not so that I might become what I was not. Easter Sunday is coming, but that isn't good news without Good Friday. It's the day that's the center of our faith. It's a cross-shaped faith. It's where we see what love really looks like. And we're going to respond now just by... Just for three and a half minutes, we're going to listen to a song. And what I would encourage you to do as we listen to this is just to close your eyes. And after that, I'm going to ask Steve to come and just give us an opportunity to respond, particularly for those that maybe you aren't a follower of Jesus yet. Or maybe you've walked in and you've not been following him for a long time. And I want to give you an opportunity to come back to him, to come back into the Father's house this morning. But we're just all going to take a moment to reflect and I'm going to ask the guys just to play this song and uh, let's just close our eyes and worship and thank Jesus for the cross. Just get-
So amazing. So divine. Demands my soul, my life, my all. You know, God's grace, God's amazing grace is something that we all need. I live in it every day. Just my question for you is, have you received it? In Revelation 3, Jesus himself says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. Whoever opens the door to me, I will come in. I will eat with them. You can know friendship with God today. You can know the forgiveness of your sins. You can know Christ as your substitute. And you can know him as your victor. I just want to invite every person across the room for a minute to bow their eyes, bow their heads, close their eyes. Because I want to give you an opportunity. If you want to open the door of your heart to Jesus right now, then you can pray this prayer with me 
say, Lord Jesus, I come to you wanting to turn away from the sin in my life. To put my trust in the finished work of the cross. I want to thank you for dying for me in my place and for my sin. I invite you, come in. Be the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name.